weddings present us with one of the greatest transitions in this life. In a split second, one moves from the land of singleness to married life. On a lovely summer day, about eight years ago, I experienced this as Gloria and I were married in front of our family and closest friends. It was a beautiful Christ-exalting ceremony. We were encouraged and uplifted. And for the reception, we had all of our favorite foods from all of our favorite restaurants. You wouldn't expect anything less from me, would you? We had chips and salsa, spinach and artichoke dip, chicken strips. We had quesadillas. Making myself hungry just thinking back at this. And to top it off, instead of a traditional wedding cake, we had 50 Boston cream pies stacked up into a big pyramid for dessert. It was quite simply, in my most humble opinion, the greatest wedding food in the history of wedding food. Well, prior to this wedding and the great feast that we would have afterwards, I began my preparation for marriage. I began reading every book that I could find on the topic. I began talking to older married couples. I memorized the passage from Ephesians chapter 5, talking about husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And Gloria and I, we went through premarital counseling, and I pledged, I was determined that I would be the greatest husband ever to walk on the face of the earth. I even said in my vows in the ceremony, we wrote our own vows, and I said that I would be forgiving, that I would be loving and kind and sweet. But as soon as the ceremony ended, after the world's fastest 45 minutes had come and gone, and we were now married, everything changed. I was now a husband. I was no longer a single man. But I realized just how little I actually knew about marriage. You know, husbands and wives, can you relate to this? I mean, you read, you study. But as soon as you become one, I realized that I had a long, long way to go. I now had the title husband. It was now my role to love my wife. But being a good husband in the way that I promised to Gloria on that summer day, September 21st, 2002. That's right. Is that, is that the right day? Okay. <laughs> Didn't want to mess that up in front of everyone. September 21st, 2002. But after that day, it was increasingly difficult. I had a long way to be a good husband. And if you have been been married for any length of days, you can understand this. It's a lifelong process. There are ups and downs. There are trials and successes. Well, something is very similar is true of us as Christians. Because we are united to God by faith, God has given us a new status. He's given us a new identity. We are now legally Christians. We have been justified, declared righteous. The verdict has been proclaimed by the holy judge. We are God's. And God relates to us not as sinners, but as saints. Not as slaves, but as sons. But if you are here and you've been a Christian for any length of time... You know that learning to live true to our identity as saints is a process. There's a gap between our position and our practice. Just like the gap between the position of being a husband and the practice of being a good one is there. We may positionally as Christians be in Christ, but there are some days when 
We don't look much like it, do we? There are many days that we proclaim with the Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of Romans. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now it is in this separation of title and actual practice that Jesus is concerned about in his prayer this morning. Last week we saw that the first thing Jesus prays was for God's glory. And we saw that God's glory is to be the foundation of all that we pray for. Well, today we'll see uh, the beginning of four more things. So in this prayer in chapter 17, Christ prays for five things. We're going to see the second and the third of those things today. And along with that, we'll have instruction on how to close the gap from simply being called a Christian to actually looking like one. So if you turn with me to chapter 17 of John's Gospel, it's the fourth book of the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you want to turn with me, we come again to this beautiful passage. This is sacred territory. We are permitted here again to overhear the eternal Son of God praying to the eternal Father. So let us read this passage this morning, starting in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me. And they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you. Oh, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction So that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too 
may be truly sanctified. In this most remarkable passage, we'll see that Jesus prays two things for the disciples. For their protection and for their holiness. Protection and holiness. That's the outline this morning. That's where we're headed. Well, you may be asking this morning, what about us? We saw last week Jesus prayed for himself. Next week Jesus prays directly for us. What about this? Is Jesus merely praying for the disciples or does it apply to us? Just how hard of a break do we have between these sections? Well, I think when you look at it at first glance, you see in verse 11 that he's talking about leaving the disciples. In verse 12, he talks about physically being with them. He mentions Judas, the one who betrayed him. But I think as you read the passage and come to verse 20, which is after our section, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through the message. So I don't actually think there's a big break here. It's kind of debated, but I think there's no break. I think the prayer here and the prayer after verse 20 applies to all of us as believers. He's not just saying, I'm praying for the 11. This doesn't apply to everyone else. I think this applies very, very real to us. It's very applicable and very necessary for us. We desperately need this prayer to be answered. You'll also notice in our passage this morning that he doesn't actually ask a request of the Father until uh, about verse 11. Until then, he's just describing who Jesus is and who these people he prays for. He says, notice in verse 6 and 7, he tells us that he prays for those the Father has given to him and have believed in him. And then notice in verse 9, Jesus is saying he doesn't pray for the world. And again, acknowledging he only prays for those the Father has specifically given to him. Brothers brothers and sisters, do you see that as a believer, Jesus prays for you? You are his and he loves you. Now, just let, let that sink in for a moment. Let's not just gloss over this because we understand these words and we're used to them and we're familiar with them. We can't pass over John 17 here and not say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, thank you for giving us to Jesus, Father. Thank you for giving us to him. Notice in verse 6 and also in verse 9 that those who are saved were specifically handpicked, given from the Father to the Son to be saved. It was an act that the Father did. Now, there's nothing that we can do to be given to the Son. It's all, it's all the Father's work. Now, as a believer, the fact that it's all God ought to humble us greatly. As a believer, we did nothing good to spare, to be spared God's wrath. And it doesn't mean that you were any better than the person sitting next to you. As if God looked out there and said, this person's bad, this person's okay. Now, now there is a good person. I'll save them. No, none of us were good. No, God didn't choose you because you were good. Nor did God merely look into the future and see that you would be good or that you would choose him. No, the Bible is clear that there are no good people. You and I were not on a mountain of righteousness in the midst of a rebellious world. No, God saved us while we were not only evil, but the Bible calls us enemies of God. 
We hated the things of God. As Christians, we are those who are saved by God's precious grace through the death of Christ. And this ought to humble us. That God would choose us. It should cause us to fall on our faces and say, why would you bring me to your table? Why would the Father, why would you give me to the Son? And not only does the Father give us to the Son, but we see that he prays for us. Look at the first request. He prays for protection. Verses 11 and 12. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. And then in verse 12, speaking to the, of the disciples, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. Now, this is often called the perseverance of the saints. But as R.C. Sproul has said, we don't persevere because of our own strength, but because we are persevered by God himself. The doctrine would be better called the perseverance of the Savior. God won't stop short of bringing you home. Our continued salvation is not dependent on us. So friends, I know that, I know that some of you are struggle with this. I know some of you doubt and worry about your salvation, worry that if you are truly saved or not. I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, that our God is a preserving God. And there's nothing that you can do to make Christ let go of you. Nothing. If you've repented of your sin and believed in Jesus for your salvation, then you are saved by grace through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. I encourage you that if you doubt, your, it, is, it is good, it is fine for you to doubt yourself. If that's you today, you are right to say you're unworthy. You are right to say, I can't do it. I just, I can't. You're right to say that. And you'd be right to say that you can't keep yourself saved. You're right. Only God can do that. And he does because it's a gift. You did nothing to earn it and you can do nothing to make God let go of you. That's what Jesus is praying here. Lord, keep them. Keep their citizenship in heaven that has been earned. Well, you may be asking now, well, what about the rest of verse 12? What about Judas? Didn't Jesus lose Judas when he should have kept him? I mean, he was an apostle, and he turned Jesus in to be killed. Did Jesus fail to keep one of his children? Well, certainly not. Judas was not one who was ever given to the Father, given by the Father to the Son. That's what the phrase in verse 12 means, doomed for destruction. He was never one of God's chosen. He was always facing death. Other verses call him the son of perdition. It indicates that from birth, he was on a straight line toward perdition, toward lostness. It's the same language used of the man of lawlessness. And the Antichrist. Judas was a thief. He betrayed Jesus on one occasion. On another occasion, Jesus says that it would have been better for that man to what? To have never been born. Because as soon as he was born, he was on the way to perdition. It was his only possible end. Jesus is saying, none of my children are lost Verse 12 says, Jesus betrayed Jesus so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
See, we see that in Psalm 41. We see it again in Zechariah 11:13. that five years before the birth of Jesus, it was predicted that Judas would turn Jesus in for 30 shekels of silver. It was prophesied that it would happen. So the point is not that Jesus failed to keep Judas, but that he knew Judas would fail. Judas never responded in repentance. He never responded in belief. He was never saved. Because God always protects those who are saved until the end. So if you're a Christian, be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged that Jesus is praying for you to keep you safe. And he's letting the disciples and you and I know that while he was still on this earth, that he's praying that we're saved so that in verse 13 we can have a full measure of joy. Do you see that in verse 13? How are you doing with joy this morning? Some of you might say you're not doing very well at all. Well, I encourage you to meditate on this prayer this morning. Meditate on the fact that you are protected by God for all of eternity. But not only that, we're protected here on this earth as well. As John 14, John 14 says, He's given you a down payment in that you have the Holy Spirit living within you. He will keep you to the end. Well, not only does God protect us forever, He protects us, protects us from this world when it hates us. Look at verses 14 through 16 again. In these verses, Jesus is saying that the world will hate Christians because they are now gods. And in verse 17, he prays, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So Christ prays for protection regarding our salvation. And now he prays in these verses for protection from the evil one and from the world. We see in this prayer that the church is not to withdraw from the world and... We are not to conform to the world. We are not to withdraw from the world as a means of protection. God says, go into the world and I will protect you. We are in the world, but not of the world. So we don't seek retreat from the world. And as a church, this is a huge temptation, isn't it? Even here in the UAE, we are in a land filled with unreached people. Yet it's a huge temptation for us to merely retreat into our own Christian bubble. To merely have our Christian potlucks, go to Christian daycare, take meals with other Christians and only befriend Christians. This is a huge temptation for me as a pastor to spend my time merely with Christians. And those are good things. Those are good things. We keep doing them. We don't stop. But let's not make it the main thing. We are called not to separate from the world, but to go into the world. Fellowship with other Christians is not the goal. It's it's just not the goal. It's the means. It's the encouragement. It's the support. It's the accountability. So that when we go into the world, we can be faithful to God. So we don't retreat. We don't retreat like, like monks. It's said that one famous monk named Simon of Stylites couldn't find a corner on the earth to retreat. 
Everywhere he went, he found more people, more wickedness to distract them from loving God. So Simon built a huge, tall pole. And he climbed up to the top of the pole and built kind of the equivalent of a little, small tree house. And he lived up there. Kind of in the pictures, it looks more like just a big basket that he sat in. His food was transported up in a bucket. And he retreated from the world to separate himself from the pollution and distraction. See, the Bible tells us what? It tells us to do the exact opposite. It tells us that we are to engage with the world. We are to be on mission in the world. And Jesus prays while we do this that we have protection from the evil one. The evil one will hate us. But notice what Jesus doesn't pray. He doesn't pray, Father, take them out. No, he says, I need them here. They must go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They must be my witnesses. So I encourage you today to press on. Be bold. Be different from the world. Proclaim Jesus. He'll be with you. He promises that. And it won't be easy, and you may face suffering on this earth. But he'll protect you and keep you safe till the end. So Christ prays for protection. Well, the second thing Christ prays for us is for us to be sanctified, to be holy. Look at verses 17 through 19 again. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Sanctified means holy. It is almost an adjective for God. It's the idea of being other distinct, separate from creation. It's to be set apart. We see in the Old Testament certain items, objects like chairs in the Holy of Holies were described as as holy. Mount Sinai is called holy. A chair in the tabernacle is called holy because it means to be set apart for his work. So Jesus is praying that we'd be set apart and made fit for his work. Now why is this important? Well, remember what Lenny told us a few weeks ago in Psalm chapter 25. He told us up front that he knew what God's will for our lives was. Remember that? Remember when he left us hanging throughout the whole sermon? We had to wait and wait and wait until he finally told us what it was. Then at the end of the sermon, he read from 1 Thessalonians, and he said that God's will for our lives is that we be holy that this needs to be our all-consuming passion. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I think a good example of this is to imagine a runner, a runner who really, really wants to make it. I want to be the best in the world at running the marathon. And so what does she do? She sets herself apart to do that. But it doesn't mean she merely trains for the Olympics that that's all she does. She still spends some time with friends. She can go see a movie. She's not only training, but it means that everything is subservient to that goal. If it's not not subservient to that goal of training, then it's ditched. Where she lives is determined by the training. What she eats is determined by her training 
for the Olympics. See, to be wholly set apart means that everything you do is stuffed into a laser beam headed toward one thing. There's no competition. There is one supreme goal. That's what being holy means. It means being set apart for God. Everything we do is subservient to his purposes. Now you say, how, how can I, how, how can I be that? I mean, I'd like to be separated for God. I'd like to be holy. How? How do I become this? Well, in this passage, Jesus gives us two ways here in his prayer. He says we have to be sanctified by truth and by grace. Look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. God makes us set apart for his work by studying the Bible. This truth is stated throughout the scriptures. When Joshua takes over for Moses, he is told not to let the book of the law depart from his mouth. And in the opening of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Don Carson once said, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. See, would any of us really want everyone here in this room to see a transcript on these screens of every thought you had yesterday? Just imagine if right after the sermon, we randomly picked one of you, and I brought you up here to the platform, and while you stood here, your thoughts from yesterday scrolled down these screens. Imagine how terrified you'd be. Imagine how terrified all of us would be watching that. My first pastor would always say to the congregation, if I knew all of your thoughts, I would not let you in those doors of our church building. But if you knew all my thoughts... You would not let me preach to you. Now, isn't that the truth? We all need to be sanctified in our actions and in our thoughts. And so Jesus prays that through the reading of the Bible, through the reading of his word, this would happen. Our thought lives change when we are thinking God's thoughts after him. And that happens when we have a regular diet of reading God's word. When we read it regularly, God begins to change us. Because he has communicated everything you need to know to be holy, to be faithful to him, to love him right there in his words. So I encourage you this morning to, to live in it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it. Let the Spirit use God's word to shine light, light into the cracks and crevices of your soul to show you your dangerous sin that lies beneath even your best works. Let the word shape your life as it is the very words of God. As John Piper has said, it's the word of God. It can't be boring. When it's boring, we're the problem. It is filled with a Vesuvius of joy and energy and power and love and grace and justice and strength. It can't be boring. The world is boring. 
Avatar is boring. <laughs> John Piper is hilarious. But he's right. I'm not sure if Avatar is boring standing on its own, but compared to the Bible, it's terribly boring. So what Piper is saying is that the Bible is beautiful. It's the most dynamic, life-changing story of the world's greatest hero in history, Jesus Christ. That's the word of God. And we have it. And so when we dwell on the gospel found in the Bible, when we dwell on his magnificent word, he begins, begins chiseling away at the sin in our lives. He changes us. And he changes our object of affection from the world to the Savior. No other story has that kind of power. That's why we're going to spend three concentrated weeks in September just studying the gospel that is found in the Bible. Because we all need it. Our propensity is to drift. We don't drift toward holiness. It's, it's not natural for us. So we are sanctified by God's word. But we are also sanctified by his grace. Look at verse 19. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now what does this mean? It's a confusing verse. What does it mean? What does it mean that Christ was sanctified? Did he sin less? Did he look more like God at some point? No, no. we know that Christ was he who knew no sin. Remember what we said earlier, that sanctify means wholly set apart to be separated? Don Carson has said the original meaning of sanctify took it one step further and said that the meaning was more like to be cut off. And that this original meaning is most likely what Christ was saying right here. See, holiness means that you will separate yourself from evil. That you will cut yourself off from unholy things. But when Jesus is using the term here, he's not talking about sinning less. Couldn't be the case for him. He's talking about cutting himself off. He is saying that I cut myself off so that they may be saved and made holy. The famous passage from Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that this is exactly what happened to Jesus. That he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. That his body was cut on the tree. That he was pierced for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our iniquities. That by his stripes we are healed. It says his body was cut so badly that his and his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness and even worse he was stricken by god afflicted and ultimately rejected by the father so when jesus is saying to sanctify you i sanctify myself what he is saying is that i will be cut off I will take the punishment that you deserve. I will take the punishment so you can have peace, 
so that you can be healed, so that you can be made holy and sanctified, so that you could be kept to the end. So if you're here this morning and you don't know God, we are, we are thrilled that you're here. We are thankful you're here. We hope that you keep coming. We pray for that. But I encourage you from the bottom of my heart, come to this God today. There's no greater joy found in this entire earth than to know the truth, that we were all dead in our sin, but that Jesus went to these great lengths on the cross, being separated from the Father. He was cut off from the Father himself, the full measure of God's wrath placed on himself so that we could be saved. The Bible is clear that one can be saved only by repenting of your sin and believing in Christ. So I urge you today to do that, to turn from your sin, to believe in the one that bled and died in your place. He promises to love you. He promises to protect you. He promises to sanctify you. And if you are a Christian here this morning, study the word. Study it. Study his grace found in the gospel. For Christ cut himself off from life and the Father so that you could be saved. Remember that today. Remember that the Father willingly took his son's life. The son willingly took his life. How then could you not give your life away? How could you not worship this God? How could you not live in holiness? How could you ever be scared of this world? And how could you ever love this world and what it has to offer more than you love Jesus and what he has offered freely to you? Well, let's pray. These are wonderful truths to know. Well, let's pray now and ask for God's mercy to have this truth imprinted on our souls this week because it's so easy for once we leave those doors just to forget, isn't it? So let's pray and ask for God's help that we'd be sanctified by his truth and by his grace. Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, how sweet is your grace. How delightful is your kindness toward us that you would give us your Son as a gift. How amazing is your love that you would spare us and sacrifice your own son. Help us to meditate on your miraculous mercy today. Help us to swim in the ocean of your love. And may we marvel at your protection. And may we be holy as you are holy. And it is in Christ's precious holy name that we pray. Amen.